from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here to join the conversation, listen in, as we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, our fragile, broken world, and what your role is in it. And then there's your private self, who you are as an individual, the groups that you belong to, yes, but then there's you as a, as a distinct human being, your mind, body, and spirit. How do you find harmony among all those different parts and live in a way that's true to what you value most in the world? Well, that is our purpose here, to bring you useful knowledge about how to do that, create greater harmony and improve performance in all the different parts of your life. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, the Wharton Leadership Program, and I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership, and you can find out about our services that have been helping people and organizations create greater harmony and improve performance in all parts of life for almost two decades now. You can find out about us at totalleadership.org. There's free book chapters there, articles, videos, assessment tools, lots of cool stuff. So visit us there at totalleadership.org. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. This is an important show today, and I'm excited about our guest and so glad that she's here. You know, it's one thing to support diversity and inclusion personally, yourself and your in your world. It's quite another to lead the DNI diversity and inclusion efforts at an iconic international company with tens of thousands of employees. Well, that's what our guest today does. I'm delighted to welcome Natalie Nielsen Edwards to the program. Natalie is a Wharton alum. She took my course on total leadership at the Wharton School a number of years ago, and she's currently the Global Executive Director of Inclusion and Diversity at the Estee Lauder Companies. Natalie, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much, Stu, for having me. I'm so excited to be here today talking with you about this. Well, it's great to have you here. Let me tell listeners a little bit more about you before we jump in. In her role at Estee Lauder, Natalie leads inclusion and diversity strategy and operations for 45,000 employees and 25, more than 25 prestige cosmetics, skincare, hair care, and fragrance brands across the 150 countries where the company's products are sold. Truly a global enterprise. Natalie earned a double major MBA in operations and business analytics at Morton. She led multiple diversity efforts and chaired the school's inclusion strategy and was named to a best MBA global list. We're going to be talking about the Wharton years for a bit, I hope, what you discovered while you were here, what you hope for the future of the Wharton School, especially now that we have a new dean, Erica James, who is a Black woman, first in history here at the Wharton School. Natalie also proudly holds an undergraduate degree in finance from Howard University, where she graduated as female graduates of the year. Natalie, so good to have you here. Thank you so much, Stu. All right. So let's start with um, how you got into this diversity and inclusion work. What led you uh, to become so focused and committed to that as uh, what has at least so far been a main, if not the main feature of your professional life? Yeah, so I think the obvious and, and the direct point where I got a lot of clarity in what I wanted to do, Stu, was actually your total leadership class. Oh. Uh, no surprises there to you probably, but I actually have to take it back a little further. And for me, as a Black woman, daughter of two Jamaican immigrants growing up in Houston, Texas, uh, my father worked in oil and my mother was a teacher. Um in an incredibly diverse suburb of Houston called Sugarland, Texas, which to this day is one of the most diverse zip codes in America, mm -hmm. I learned very much so how to thrive in multicultural environments, but also it wasn't isolated from some of the historical racism uh, that applied to particularly people of color. And so navigating that world, navigating public school where I was the only black woman in 
black kid in general in many of my honors classes throughout public school to wow. then going to a historically black college, Howard University, um, which is getting a lot of publicity right now because Kamala Harris is also an alum of Howard. Mm -hmm. um, and then going into consulting and then going to Wharton. For me, many of the major environments I've been in have been either diverse or not and figuring out how to make it more inclusive. And so for me, when I came to Wharton, after quite a few years in consulting, um, I really was inspired by Wharton's culture of, if you see something, you can change it, student-driven leadership. Yeah. And when I took your class and had to go through the four domains and felt so lucky to be in your class and finally learn a lot of in-depth exercises about what I wanted out of life, how I define success, for me, at that time, diversity and inclusion careers weren't very common. I, mm. I did not know a single person that worked in diversity and inclusion. Mm. And those were pivotal years of my life where diversity and inclusion went from almost back office to very front office, given the rate of change the world was going through and what the role of the company was in societal matters. And so for me, doing the exercises in total leadership and determining that equality was a core value of mine. And no matter what I ended up working in, I wanted to do work that really established representation and equality for all led me actually to do diversity and inclusion work. So were you a first or second year student when you were in my class? I was one of the four first years in your class. Yes, that's <laughs> what I was recalling in preparation for the show today. So. So at that time, what were you thinking you might be doing before you came to realize, yeah, my core value is equality and I need to devote uh, a, a bigger share of my uh, invested career potential in that sphere. Uh, what, what was it, can you say more about like what clicked and then, and then we'll get into your past since then and what, you're, what you've been doing at Estee Lauder. Yeah, so I don't I don't know if you're a member, but in your class, I had come to Wharton and have actually applied to Wharton, really wanting to go from traditional consulting to actually hospitality work. I ended up being president of the Wharton Hospitality Club. I became the first Wharton intern at Southwest Airlines, which was just a few weeks after finishing your class. And I really wanted to go into the restaurant business and hospitality business. And I was drawn because... I spent over 10 years in life working in restaurants. And what I loved about it is that they were very diverse environments. You didn't get to choose who you, who sat down at the table. You had to respond to different cultures, different languages, different needs. And, you know, if you've ever looked behind the scenes of a restaurant operation, it's usually incredibly multilingual, multicultural. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And your class helped me realize that, restaurants and hospitality were really the industry but what i loved about the work was the was the inclusion aspect of it mm -hmm. and the service leadership aspect of it mm -hmm. and so for me it's interesting i may one day still manage a restaurant or own a restaurant who knows um but for me right now a, there's actually a huge venn diagram into what i do now in the beauty industry and and what i thought i wanted which was going into hospitality so that kind of helped me clarify what you the mean the overlap what what is the overlap that you're referring to there the What's overlap is understanding and i think many mbas and many peers of mine had to learn this later on is that there's sometimes is a difference between industry and core values mm -hmm. of what you want in your career. And so your core values can actually be served in a job that's in an industry you had never even previously considered. Right. And when you, when you dig deeper, mm -hmm. you actually see more broadly paradoxically exactly. because exactly. you get to the core. There's lots of different ways of, of its expression, you know, flourishing in, in, in many different environments is kind of what you make of it. And so that's, that's what you have found at Estee Lauder? Yeah. So again, going through those exercises really made me realize that a core value of mine was understanding and empowering equality, and then also doing strategic work to drive progress. And so for me, working in diversity and inclusion, particularly in a beauty industry that has the power of changing who looks at ads and sees themselves as beautiful 
or worthy or is affirmed at a young age. Studies show that um, particularly young girls look at TV ads and media ads, and it directly ties their self-esteem starting, I think, at like age three. Um, And so for me, working in diversity and inclusion and getting to impact future generations based on whether they see themselves represented as beautiful can literally change the world, at least in my opinion. Well, thinking back to when you were young um, and you know what you described about your, your childhood in Sugarland, where you were in a multicultural environment, except in the honors classes, that's what I heard, that that was a, a lot less diverse according to what you just described. Did I have that right? Yep, that's correct. So what was that like for you? Um, to be in both worlds, really. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was looking back. Um, and I very... guess I'm asking because I, I'm curious to know what you took from that experience that you use now in your work uh, in, in leading inclusion and diversity efforts at SLR. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember those years very vividly because I think, and I, many people who have felt this way also never forget what it feels like. The mm-hmm. feeling of feeling othered Mm-hmm. And the feeling that nobody ever tells you this explicitly, but you can feel it that if you succeed, you're an exception, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if people felt that people that look like you could succeed, you wouldn't be the only one in the room, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the internalized messages that happen, which is why I think representation is so important. And again, that's something I directly get to impact in my current role? How do we diversify the room? How do we diversify the perspectives at the table? Is the so when you say representation, let's, let's make sure listeners yeah. understand what you mean by that term. Representation simply means, do you see yourself? Are there literal examples mm. of someone who looks like you in a position you aspire to be in? Okay. So being, well, having, it, from what you described, a kind of doubt about well, do I belong here? Because mm-hmm. you were isolated in the honors classes. How, how did that affect you? And how does that carry into what you do now? Think about that for a second. I just want to remind listeners, this is Work in Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're joining us today. My guest is Natalie Nielsen Edwards. She's the Global Executive Director of Inclusion and Diversity at the Estee Lauder Companies. And a distinguished, I dare say, alum of the Wharton School, and I'm happy to say an alum of my total leadership class at Wharton. So, Natalie, uh, back to my question about what you took from that experience that you use now. Yeah, I mean, for me, being the only one in the classroom Mm -hmm. where you were expected to perform well, and quite honestly, have numerous conversations in the classroom about applying to college and taking your academics to the next level, right? Um, Made me wonder why was it that the students that weren't in that room looked like me and the students in that room did not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, taking that to my current role, Mm -hmm. it really made me realize how important it is to see yourself represented at all levels of the organization. So you don't just see yourself over there or you don't see yourself over there, but you see yourself at all levels in all departments. So that way choice for your career is truly yours and there's nowhere you're supposed to be, right? Yeah. So you you somehow managed to work through that self-doubt um, and you probably did not do that on your own. Uh, how did you How did you navigate that trial that 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 series of trials which probably occurred on a daily basis that you were able to come somehow overcome um you know these these internal questions as you describe them yeah well i mean let me be clear i also was very privileged and honored to have a um family that truly valued education and truly right. empowered me and encouraged me and made sure my homework was done not everyone is blessed to have that right? Um, You know, I come from a long line of also strong Black women. Uh, My mother is phenomenal. 
uh, is truly boundary breaking. My grandmother was the first woman to run a hotel in the island of Jamaica. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And this was the 50s. This was unheard of. Wow. Um, because women weren't given that? It just wasn't common at the time. And, and same here in America for women to really not only be working inside mm-hmm. of the home, but also running mm-hmm. the office. And if you think of, you know, Jamaica is a tourism dominated economy. Totally. So running a hotel is like being a CEO, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so that, I mean, that was unheard of at that time. And uh, my aunt is a doctor who is truly leading the the island's uh, coronavirus response. So for me, it was never a question of whether I would succeed. It was making sure that they affirm me at home. So when I went into those environments, I knew who I was Mm -hmm. and I knew that I could succeed. And also it was ingrained in me to make sure that you may be the only person in the room, but it's also up to you to influence the fact that once you leave that environment, there will be more representation than how, what you encountered when you were in that room. Okay, so no wonder you're doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm thank you for for telling us that that bit of history. Uh, I think it's important, but I, I now want to get to what you're what you're seeing uh, both at Estee Lauder and, and beyond. You know, uh, you so you've you've clearly had an interest in these questions really your whole life as you describe it. Uh, but now, in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, mm-hmm. captured on tape, the Jacob Blake shooting, mm-hmm. so many other such incidents uh, and, and protests for police reform and, and equitable justice. There is suddenly, it feels to me at my you know advanced age, and I've you know I've seen a lot. I was around in the '60s, but this feels very different. Uh, a greater appreciation among you know, the whole population, the white American world, that systemic racism is real. It, this, this moment of historical reckoning um, is, is here. And at the same time, you've got the Justice Department going after places like Yale for using affirmative action measures, both to help redress old wrongs and create a diverse environment. Uh, there's so much societal turmoil and emphasis now on racial injustice filtering through to HR departments, to your work, how, so let's start, you know, from the macro into the micro of, of Estee Lauder. As you, as you look at the work you're doing now in the larger social context, what, what's most pressing for you? How, how is what you're doing now affected by what's happening in the world today? Absolutely. And, you know, Stu, I think that what many diversity and inclusion leaders, and I belong to a few national councils that have mm-hmm. my peers from other industries and other companies mm-hmm. on them as well. What we're all learning, as well as our leadership is learning at all of our companies and continue to learn, is that what I learned in total leadership, right? There's no such thing as something being outside of the workplace. It, if it affects your employees and your consumers, it is within the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I think what George Floyd taught us what I think what Jacob Blake is teaching us, Brianna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, the list goes on, unfortunately, is that the role of the company is a societal one. Um, We do not just sell products. We, in my opinion, we empower. And for me, what I say all the time within the company is that if we sell products that make people hold their heads up high, then it is our business to understand and impact what makes people hold their head down. So what is going on in society that is impacting humanity, which is impacting civil rights, how people navigate the world around them? That's our business too. And so for me, you actually may, you can check it out on our company's website. We made commitments to racial equity that are public. Um, Some pretty bold ones that have been applauded across industries, such as making sure that in the next five years, we will reach population parity for Black employees at every level in our organization in the next Population parity, I think I know what that means, but for our audience, please define that. Sure. So currently, Black people in the United States are about 14% of the population. Um, And so in the next five years, we hope to reach 14% Black employees at every level. Okay. 
So that's one of the bold commitments that mm -hmm. you're making in response to what's happening. Please continue in describing how what you do, what your company does, is uh, a part of uh, you know, the, the, the movement that is afoot in America today and around the world. Yes, well, you know, I think generally speaking, um, how you impact change is what power is, is influence. And when you're a large organization, like I still at our companies and you make billions of dollars a year across nations, when you make a statement that says Black Lives Matter, that makes an impact. People hear you. All of our consumers hear us. Everyone who buys our products hears us. Um, and the effect is cumulative and consequential across different people's networks and the conversation keeps moving. And so for me, again, I return to the, my core belief is that companies have a huge opportunity and a huge potential impact if they were to take statements that are in alignment with their values as the world keeps moving and more mm -hmm. current events keeps happening. And inclusion and diversity, I'm happy to say, has always been a value of ELC from our founder. From Estee Lauder companies? Yes. Can you say more about that briefly, about how you know the founding principles and values are uh, still alive today? Yes. So um, for those that don't know, um, Estee Lauder Companies was founded by Mrs. Estee Lauder, who at the time was an immigrant and a woman who started this multi-billion dollar conglomerate um, as a woman in the 1940s, which at the time was unheard of. And she differentiated herself in the beauty market by actually taking the time to get to know her customers, know her employees. It was not uncommon for Mrs. Estee to go to someone at the beauty counter selling the products and ask them about, you know, Eric, their son that was in the second grade. She would know that. And so when we say that inclusion and diversity is embedded in our values, that was always a non-negotiable from her and has been passed down through the generations of the family um, that is still in leadership today. So the bold claims that you're making or aspirations, the population parity, um, the Black Lives Matter, how has your um, various markets, how have they responded to those, those statements, those initiatives? Well, um, they've responded well. We've received, um, and, and in all transparency, it wasn't just us. We've seen many of our other peer organizations in the beauty industry and across industries uh, make similar statements. And I think, you know, the jury is still out, of course. We, it's, you know, been a few months since these commitments were made. We'll see um, how consumers respond over the long term for sure. Mm -hmm. But we have seen many thank yous, many thank you so much for making this statement. I'm so excited to be a longtime supporter of your brands because of these statements that we're making on our values and the action that, of course, has to follow. I want to talk about that. Uh, we're going to be breaking in just a moment or two. But before we get there, what about the people who are not happy with what you're saying? Because I know that there are some of those folks out there as well. What's what's been you know the reaction on you know the negative side and how have you responded to that? Yeah, well, I can't speak for every one of our consumers, but I I do remember in business school learning that when you try to serve everyone, you serve no one. Right? That was like a core principle in our marketing classes, mm -hmm. and all a company can really do is understand what their values are and stand upon them. Mm -hmm. um, there is no company that 100% of the global population actively buys its products and is in love with them, right? You learn that in marketing? <laughs> yes. They do uh, teach some valuable things over in that department. Oh, they teach okay. incredible right. things in our marketing department at Wharton. Um, but my point is, Stu, is all you can do is know what you stand for as an organization. Mm -hmm. And when you stand firm in those and you communicate those, you will attract consumers who agree with those values. And we've seen from the research, Business of Fashion actually released a report in January of this year. What is the name of that organization? Sorry. Business of Fashion. Business of Fashion. Um, Thank you. Yes. They released a report in January 
that actually made the claim that two thirds of buyers today um, are self-proclaimed belief-driven buyers. Mm -hmm. And that means they will actively buy from a company or boycott a company based on its stance for diversity and inclusion related issues. Um, so this makes sense from a business perspective. Yes, we're, we're gonna We're gonna have to take a break here. And when we come back, I wanna pick up on uh, not just how uh, diversity and inclusion efforts are consistent with the core values of the organization and its and its business strategy, but but what it takes to you know to get to population parity, and what you're hoping to see in the future, both at Estee Lauder at Wharton, in the world at large, and what your what your plans are for for making that happen. But let's just take a quick break here. When we come back, I'll be continuing my conversation with Natalie Nielsen Edwards of Estee Lauder Companies. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman. And my guest today is Natalie Nielsen Edwards. She's a 2018 graduate of the Wharton MBA program, and she is now the Global Executive Director of Inclusion and Diversity at the Estee Lauder Companies. Natalie, uh, we were talking about what is happening at Estee Lauder, your brief bit about the history and how it's playing out in today's world. What what are some of the things that you're you're doing presently at Estee Lauder to to advance the cause of diversity and inclusion, population parity, and the other uh, outcomes that you're striving for internally that uh, our our listeners can learn from that are what you have seen to be best practice? What's working well as 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 you pursue uh, the goals of diversity and inclusion at your company? Yes, Stu. I think one of the things that I have been most encouraged by, particularly lately, is that employees of all departments, of all levels, are taking on inclusion work. And I and it, you know, I think one of the biggest transformations many industries and companies have seen is diversity and inclusion work going from the DNI team to now everybody having some form of responsibility in the inclusion levels of their own teams, their own departments, their own business units, their own brands. And so for me, that wow. has been the biggest- Hang on one second. So how did you get to that? Because that's, that's always been the challenge, right? Is to, is to keep it from you know, being isolated in kind of a ghetto, if you will, you know, where it's just you know, people who are disenfranchised talking to each other mm -hmm. uh, and, and sort of mainstreaming these, these ideas and principles. What did it take to get there? Um, I, I, you know, I don't- I don't think I can pinpoint a specific instance. I think there's many things that have happened this year that have mm. effects on one another and cumulatively have led us to this moment. Um, I think social media, the fact that many of us are more electronically connected than before, we're all at home. We are not out, out and about in society, busy, distracted. We're all tuned in to what someone we follow on Instagram is live streaming about. And so I think the world is more you know, connected than ever, and also more susceptible to what's happening in each other's worlds with, you know, a cell phone that's in our hands. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that all has to do together with why there is increased response to current events that have been happening mm -hmm. for as long as we know. So you were saying that now, you know, you, you're seeing people taking up the, the work mm -hmm. uh, in ways that you hadn't before. Can you describe like what that looks like and maybe give an example? Yeah, one of the things that I, um, I mean, while the circumstances are unfortunate, one of the things that I love to see is that there are many anti-racist, for example, authors and researchers who've had books out for five to 10 years that now are on the New York Times bestseller list. Mm -hmm. People want to educate themselves. People want to be a part of the solution. And so for me, um, I'm certainly encouraged by the fact that people are getting off the sidelines, so to speak and owning their slice of the impact that we can all make together as a society. So how has that changed your work? I, I imagine it, it has, the landscape is different. Um, yes, so how it changes my work is that largely 
Um, previously, diversity work was largely spearheaded by the chief diversity officer, and I and I am so thankful to work for an incredible one, Mary Lou Marshall at ELC. But now we set the strategy, we set the the milestones, we set the direction in which that we want the company to go, and everyone across the globe at the company can contribute to its success. And so if, for example, one of the commitments was engaging in constant dialogue and to double down on trainings and continued education, um, we sure, you can come to an unconscious bias training, which we're now rolling out across the organization in higher frequencies. But we've seen employees start discussion circles. We've seen employees start book clubs. And people are realizing, not just in our company, but at all companies, that everybody has a sphere of influence. Everybody has a family. Everybody has neighbors and community organizations. And you can start the conversation where you are. Everybody is the chief diversity officer of the people they interact with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And so how does that influence your work in terms of what your priorities are now? So what what's the... The, the number one priority that you've got for your work going forward in the next six to 12 months? Oh man, easy question, Hastu. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that diversity and inclusion work, one of the biggest skills I have and what many people in my function and career path have to have is prioritization. Diversity and inclusion work requires patience. You can't boil the ocean overnight. And a big priority for me is empowering education. Because if you don't understand diversity and inclusion, if you don't understand what is happening in society, you don't understand the opportunity. If you don't understand the problem, you can't be a part of the solution, right? And so for me, let's be honest, you can't solve the problem if you can't define the problem, right? That's, That's a huge issue. So much ignorance in our society about the nature of the, of of systemic racism and how uh, it plays out every day in our lives. So yes, please continue. Yes. And, you know, there's been a lot of research too on criticizing things like unconscious bias trainings. And I agree and disagree with that because I believe trainings are so important where I agree with the findings of this, of the research that says they're not helpful is at companies where unconscious bias trainings are rolled out like a one-stop solution. Mm-hmm. Sit in this two-hour training and you're cured. You're inclusive for the rest of your career, right? Many of us have to take an annual, you know, data privacy training because the assumption is that, you know, you have to do something every year for it to stick. But other companies have rolled out things like inclusion training or unconscious bias training and say, here, take it, right? Um, and, and, you know, that's it. No, for me, what I'm most proud of is that we are continuing the dialogue. This mm-hmm. is be the beginning and not the end. The, our courses really show you the fundamentals, and then we encourage you to keep showing up to the ongoing conversations with authors, the book circles, the discussion circles. Have conversations with your people manager. If you are a people manager, have regular conversations with your teams. We have many employees that make sure that diversity and inclusion is on the team meeting agenda, Right. We have incredible initiatives that are led by employees like our incredible employee resource groups. At ELC, we have over 39 employee resource groups globally in all corners of the globe. All of them are led by employees that are not on the inclusion team, right? Uh, We even have employees that are able to take part in a train the trainer program where you can be trained to facilitate unconscious bias training and inclusion training. And so that really helps to help to get people off the sidelines and to have a sphere of influence over their company. Everyone is taking ownership of their slice of the company and it all adds up to build into a culture that we like. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. Really glad you're tuning in to the conversation I'm having with Natalie Nielsen Edwards, the Global Executive Director of Inclusion and Diversity at the Estee Lauder Companies and a graduate of the Wharton School's MBA program from a few years back, and a star student in my class on total leadership back in the day. Uh, so what, 
what are the indicators of progress that you care about? Well, I mean, it depends. There's different KPIs for things like talent and hiring and representation than there are for, you know. A key performance indicator for those of you who don't know what a KPI is. (laughs) Sorry, I was speaking in Wharton language. Um, Most people know, but not everyone. (laughs) So my point is there are different markers of success depending on what program you are managing. If you are focused on driving diversity in talent and representation, then there's gonna be different markers of success than there are to building an inclusive culture and making sure that inclusion topics are part of our normal conversations across departments in the company, right? Um, So it's kind of hard to narrow down what does success look like for me as someone who has to manage everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I I love, and, and again, we're in a work from home situation right now as many people around the world still are, I love seeing when we have virtual events about, you know, things like Juneteenth and seeing the number of live attendees be in the thousands. Mm -hmm. I love getting emails from employees that said, you know what? I not only tuned into the webinar, but I watched it with my parents who are in my home with me because of what's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the, the impact you have as a company can go beyond the employee. Mm -hmm. People are watching these educational seminars with their spouses, with Mm -hmm. their children, with their parents. And the conversation keeps moving. What are some of the important things they're learning? I think important things people are learning, quite honestly, with inclusion is not just, you know, concrete facts, like learning the history of racism in America. Those are are concrete facts and historical facts, right? but also the skills they're building, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Many people, I think across our society, grew up, you know, where it was prized to say you were colorblind or to not see race, right? Or certainly not talk about it. That was something to aspire to, to not even be phased by race so you wouldn't even talk about it. So many people, I think for me, the history is important. I'm a big history buff. I love history. But for me, what will make lasting change is getting people comfortable with leaning into conversations that they previously leaned away from. Mm. Being able to develop the skill of talking about these critical topics with their teams when maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago when they went to business school, it wasn't addressed, right? And so those are the things that I think will change our society because ultimately, like I say, you know, I want everyone to be the chief diversity officer of the people they interact with every single day. And that's how we get to the world we want. What have you found to be the most difficult hurdle that people have to overcome to be able to engage in a more genuine conversation about about bias, about discrimination, about what it means for them on a day-to-day basis? I think, I think Stu, that in our current environment, people's biggest fear is saying the wrong thing or getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. And therefore their comfort zone is avoiding the conversation. You can't say the wrong thing if you say nothing at all. Right. 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 So So the only way you can avoid any sort of danger is staying safe. Right. And so I think, and you combine that with the fear that, you know, if I tweet something or if I say something, it can go viral and then everyone will think I'm a racist. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. It's a very rational fear for many people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so the, the notion of, um, you know what, I'm just going to avoid the conversation because that's how I can guarantee not saying the wrong thing, I think is the biggest hurdle for people. So giving them the tools. For white people. To be able to, for all, quite honestly, all people, right? Okay. We all maybe wanting to speak on things that are different than our own lived experiences. Mm-hmm. So I am a black woman. I may say the wrong thing about something the Hispanic community is going through, mm-hmm. you know? So just because it's not just something that might demonstrate a lack of understanding exactly. or, you know, could be offensive in ways that you just didn't know about because exactly. you're ignorant. Yes. You know, everybody has a learning journey, especially for experiences that they have not lived and they are afraid And it's understandable to Mm -hmm. expose themselves while still on the journey, Mm -hmm. right? And so we want to keep that private. 
that the yeah. fact that so, we, we don't know. So how do you help people? What do you see as the, as, the, as the most useful way to help people to take those risks of, of just being a part of a conversation where they they are ignorant, uh, almost by definition. Right? You can't know what the world is like from somebody else's perspective, certainly not everyone. Um, how, how can we help? How, do you, how, how is what you're doing, do you think, helpful in overcoming those, as you say, very real fears? One of the favorite things I tell people to do um, is to embrace the middle, right? What's that? For a lot of us, we live in a culture where it's very binary. Either you know everything and you can speak on something or you know nothing and you better keep quiet because you're going to get something wrong. So just coming to the conversation in the middle to say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I am still on my learning journey, but I'm wanting to have this conversation because this topic is important for me and it will help me to continue my own education. Mm. Simply starting out with that intention, that spoken intention, literally helps people create the elimination of that fear for that conversation. Where we get into trouble is where we enter a conversation not knowing what we're talking about and pretending like we do. Ah, Yes. So it's okay. You leadership is like also most okay. you don't have all the right? answers. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was making a joke about people who claim to be experts and they feel more comfortable in that role. Mm-hmm. Um but you know you're you're making an extremely important point that we need to enter these conversations uh with the kind of uh openness of a beginner. Mm-hmm. And the humility, right? Let's make it let's make our society more of a culture where it's okay to be a beginner. We, we all don't have to be experts in everything. I am an inclusion professional and I still am a beginner in multiple aspects of inclusion because none of us on planet earth are going to be experts in how all 6 billion plus other people on planet earth have lived life and have experienced living in society. We all have room to grow and it's okay to have the humility and yeah. demonstrate leadership in communicating that humility to say, I don't have all the answers. I'm here to enter this conversation and learn a little bit myself. I, if only everyone had that attitude, right? Uh, we, we'd have a lot more peace and uh, harmony in the world. Could we change the world? It, well, and it's, and it's great that you're, you're doing that, as, as, that that's the aspiration and the challenge. It's one that, uh, that I face in my work and many others of us do in different aspects of helping people to be open to learning about what it's like from the perspective of other people. And in a sense, that's the, you know, that is the essence of leadership. Um, I, we, we don't have much more time here, Natalie, and I want to make sure we do get to the, the Wharton story. Yeah. Uh, so really briefly, what was, what was the thing that you were most proud of in, in, in terms of the inclusion and diversity work you did while you were a student? And then I want to ask you about what you see for our school going forward and, and more broadly? Yeah, so for me, what I was most proud of at Wharton, um, I came in and I looked to my left and I looked to my right and I, I felt that specifically for people that look like me, black student, we had room to grow representation. And so immediately I- You had room to what, sorry? Grow in representation. As a school? As a school and as Did an MBA. Did you feel like you were in that honors class back at Sugarland? It Yes, yeah. It was kind of a full circle moment. And for me, it was important. Um, You know, my husband is an attorney. For him, law school is very different. It was, did you read all the pages overnight and come to class prepared? And did you get the answer right? Are you going to pass the bar? Business school, as you know, you learn just as much from the professor as you do from your peers. And so if your peers are not diverse, I felt that was a disservice. Mm. Because me raising my hand and sharing my experience as a Black woman was educating my peers who would one day lead organizations and manage people who look like me or maybe interviewing someone who looked like me. And so that was a two-year education for my peers as well. So what I did was I immediately uh, appointed myself, really. I signed up to run admissions for our African-American MBA Association. And I worked actively with the admissions office to really go from my marketing class in the morning where we talked about mapping the consumer and meeting them where they are and, and moving your company to market itself to that cons- desired consumer and then apply those principles to the Wharton School 
And I said, okay, if our consumer is a black MBA applicant, how do we position ourselves as an institution in front of this consumer? Because black people were going to business school. They just weren't applying to Wharton or they weren't, for whatever reason, Wharton was not top of mind. The same way if we have a startup, we want to make sure we want to assess who is top of mind, who are our competitors, right? Yeah. And so for me, I knew Wharton had a lot of great things to offer, but for whatever reason, we weren't being considered. And so I worked with the, the Office of Admissions and implemented some policies. And literally, I'll just tell you this quick story. We used to have a diversity day in September at Wharton. It used to be called Explore Wharton. And it was an opportunity for um, minority candidates and applicants to come and, and do a tour, sit in on classes, you know. And it was always in September, which usually was a week or two before the round one admissions deadline. And so what was happening was we would get a lot of students to explore Wharton who were already dead set on Wharton and they wanted to show their face and meet students right before they submitted their application. And for me, I went to the admissions office and I said, let's map out the admissions timeline of these candidates. Most, and I was a part of a couple of programs for minority applicants, so I knew when all of my friends who now were at Kellogg and Harvard and so on and so forth, when we researched, when we decided on schools and when we prepped. And so I said, I know for a fact that most of the black applicants I know were looking at schools in the spring. Let's move our diversity day to April and let's see what happens because I think the biggest tragedy, my hypothesis was not that black people weren't applying to Wharton, but because we weren't catching them Mm -hmm. and sharing what we have to offer when they were looking and other schools were. We moved it to April, Stu, and that year, people of color applications for round one in September was up by 30%. So you just paid attention to where where the customer was, the, the, yeah. where the market was in terms of their, their decision cycle. Uh, we, we just have a couple minutes here. Yeah, sure. And, uh, we could uh, talk at great length, I'm sure, about you know, the next era in Morton's history, what do you see? What are you hoping for? I am so excited. I was sitting at it for Dean James. I was so I was sitting at a actually ironically a diversity and inclusion leadership meeting with other peers I have from other industries. And all of a sudden my phone started to buzz um, and the announcement had just gone live and all of my peers and all of my friends from Morton were, were texting me. Do you see the news? Do you see the news? And I opened up the press release and saw her picture and I choked on my coffee stew. I had to excuse myself and I went to the bathroom and I cried. And then I came back in the room and I told everyone, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Wharton just appointed a black woman dean. (laughs) And for me, it was so full circle because just a few years prior, it was me meeting with the dean and and all the leadership and and asking and and drafting inclusion training during preterm and working with student life who've all been fantastic and really led this forward. And and if you remember, Stu, when I was in your total leadership class, the, the day we had to make a presentation about someone we admired, a leader we admired, I think most of the other people in the class picked a CEO. And if you remember, I picked John Lewis. Do you remember that? Uh, and I was reflecting. I you mentioned on that. it. I do. Now, you know, I was reflecting on that the other day, so it all makes sense now. But for me, that was leadership. Mm. Um, it wasn't just being a CEO; it was taking a stand for what you believe in and driving equality, which I learned in your class. Mm. And so, for me, one thing I'm really passionate about, and that I hope to see with Dean James, is really if we and we and other top MBA programs prepare people to lead companies. We have to embed diversity and inclusion work into our curriculum, because if if you are going to be a CEO because you went to Wharton MBA, then during those two years, you need to learn inclusion, which is why work by Professor Query is so important. You know, I couldn't go to Wharton without taking finance. It didn't matter if I wanted to work in finance or not. Right. That was something the school decided. You, you were not graduating to. here without that. Right. Mm-hmm. I take accounting. Right. All of those things. And. I would love to see that diversity and inclusion, which I already know is starting to be embedded in our marketing department, because look at what I'm experiencing in the beauty industry, right? Mm -hmm. You have to know inclusion because it will ultimately be all of us. We will all be chief diversity officers. It doesn't matter where you sit in an organization. And especially if you're going to lead one, you need to be very fluent in these concepts because it's no longer an elective. 
it's a requirement for leadership going forward. So in 30 seconds, what does Erica James, our new dean, have to do? I think she has to embed diversity and inclusion into every core competency of a Wharton student for graduation. And I think her presence and also her history of doing this work at the other schools she's been at have already started that conversation. And I look forward, so forward, as an alumni to see that Wharton MBAs, whether they end up working in finance, whether they end up working in marketing, whether they end up working in HR, understand this to their core and see it as a business imperative. That's what she has to do, and I'm looking forward to it. I am too, and I, I am uh, thrilled to hear about your experience uh, since, since graduating and all the great work that you're doing, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. What's the best place for listeners to find out more about the great work that you're doing and perhaps to connect with you? Absolutely. You can check everything we're doing out at elcompanies.com. You can also follow Estee Lauder Companies on Instagram. And as for myself personally, um, for sure, check me out on LinkedIn. But a way to get more in contact with me is Instagram. Uh, You can find me on Instagram at at Natalie Nielsen Edwards. Natalie Nielsen Edwards, thank you again for taking the time to share your experience, your wisdom with us. Really appreciate the great work that you're doing. So proud of you as a really amazing Wharton alum. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stu. I appreciate everything and I appreciate taking your class. I don't think I'd be here today if it wasn't for total leadership. Well, you did it. You did it. And you you, you used it to, to full effect and, and more. So we're all so very proud of you and Can't wait to see what happens in the next phases of your leadership journey, Natalie. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Stu. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you want to write to me about something you heard on the show, I am Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find edited versions of our show for free at totalleadership.org. There's lots of other cool stuff there. Um, Thanks, Patty Hall, for producing the show today and Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.